Black Dog Institute is a global pioneer in the identification, prevention, and treatment of mental illness and the promotion of well-being. In this podcast, clinicians and researchers from Black Dog Institute share their approach to conceptualizing depression. This podcast is part of your predisposing activity for the Dealing with Depression or Dealing with Rural Depression workshop. I'm joined now by Dr. Veronica Galvez, who's a visiting psychiatrist here at the Black Dog Institute and also a senior researcher. Thanks for joining me today, Veronica. Thanks, Bert. So, Veronica, what I'd like to ask you, you've been working for years in the field of um, depression, both clinically and in research. What have you come to understand about what is happening in the brain of someone with depression? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so that is a very complex question and it doesn't have a unique answer, basically because we still don't know what happens in exactly what happens in the brain of a depressed person and what is causing and what is a consequence from the neurobiological findings that we have there's mm, there's many doubts about what is a generating problem and what is the consequence part of the problem is that depression as you might know is an heterogeneous disorder which means that we can find different types of illnesses inside depression so we can find more biological forms of illness, which could be melancholic depression, atypical depression, bipolar depression, etc. that usually tend to be more severe. It's usually the people that need to go to hospital. And then we find other forms of depression that are more chronic, non-melancholic, usually less severe, uh, that tends to be the people that live with chronic depression and non-episodic. And this itself, it's a it's, it's a huge complexity because normally studies that have been looking into neurobiological issues with depression put all sorts of people together. So these studies are not specifically based on a particular type of depression, but they would include the term major depressive disorder that could be anything with all these things that we've, we've talked about. So it's, it's very complicated to extract conclusions about that. Also, studies that have looked into these issues uh, normally have people with antidepressants and obviously antidepressants will have an impact on this neurobiology. Um, the antidepressants that people are in could be different, so that means also a different impact. There are neurobiological processes related with age that also have an impact on the brain, so that's also a confounding factor and also have included people at different stages of the illness. So it's not the same studying a brain that has recently started to be depressed, that a brain that has been depressed for years or a brain that has been episodically depressed and then in between well. This is, this is a very complex field. And we are only at the beginning because we know like with mental disorders and especially with depression, we don't know the pathophysiology, so we don't know why things happen. When you have a myocardic infarction, you know exactly what is this happening, what is the cause, and what are the consequences. With depression, we're still not clear on the causes, and we're still not clear on the consequences. But there are several theories that have been progressing um, quite a bit since the 50s, 
So I can speak about the theories if you want. Yeah, right. yeah. So initially, depression was seen as a chemical disorder mainly. So it was thought that um, it was produced by um, depletion in neurotransmitters, especially monoamines, um, serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine mainly. And this was what was all about. So depression is just your chemical, the chemicals in your brain go low. So we'll give you some chemicals, antidepressants, and that will restore your levels and you will get better. And in part, this is true. So this was something that was initially confirmed um, by giving antidepressants to people, people get better, but it's not enough to explain depression. So we know that there are people that are not depressed that might have low levels of these neurotransmitters, but there's no mood alteration. So this is not enough to explain the depressed brain. So this was an initial theory. Uh, and then the field has been developing into other theories too. So there's been a lot of neuroimaging work ongoing. For instance, there's, there's another theory that's called the structural theory of um, depression in which we know that there are certain brain areas that have reductions in volume in the depressed brain. But we don't know if that's a consequence of depression or kind of a something that happens before being depressed. This is not clear yet. So we know there are volumetric reductions in areas such as the hippocampus, the frontal lobes, and then more deeper areas, basal ganglia, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, insula. This has been shown consistently in the literature that depressed patients, most of them show these volumetric reductions in comparison with healthy controls. The more progress the more progress the disease has done on you, the more likely you are to show these alterations. So this is not so this is not so clear at early at early stages of the disease. But then the field progressed a little bit more, and then they not only found alterations in the structure, but also alterations in the function of the brain. So now we like to think about depression as a network disorder. So depression is not a problem with just a chemical or an area in your brain. It's a problem of a network. What we have seen or what we know from research studies is that there's alterations in brain function and connectivity between certain areas. And this is still at a very preliminary stage, but we know, for instance, that very simplistically and very globally, there's a decrease in the activity, for instance, of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in depression and an increase in the activity of the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So both sides of the brain are dysregulated. We also know that the limbic areas in depression have an increase in activity. So there's kind of a, this network that it's the depression network between frontal lobes and limbic structures is altered in the function. This is something that, for instance, we try to compensate when, when we give brain stimulation treatments to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. These brain stimulation treatments are initially based on the theory that the left um, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is underactive. So we apply stimulation on this side of the brain, and then that has effects not only in this area, but also downstream effects. There's other hypotheses too. There's... Um, there's the neurotrophic hypothesis, which is something else to add. So we know that in the depressed brain, 
there's a decrease, n- not in all depressive brains, but in most of the people who, who have been studied with sort of severe depression, there's a decrease in um, neurotrophic factors, in particular BD- BDNF. So neurotrophic factors help neurons to be healthy and grow. And we know that um, the depressed brain has a decrease in the BDNF. This is also a bit controversial. As I said, it hasn't been found in all depressed brains, but it has been found in some. And we also have evidence that antidepressant treatments increase BDNF levels. So we don't know if BDNF, again, is the chicken or the egg, is the cause or the consequence, but we find decreases of BDNF in the depressed brain that can be compensated by antidepressant treatment. There's also another hypothesis, which is the inflammatory hypothesis. And I have to say that these hypotheses are not necessarily exclusive, but they probably, like all of them, have something true behind, behind them. And it's probably a combination of all these. There's also a lot of research regarding inflammation and depression. Again, it seems there's, there's a bidirectional relationship between inflammation and depression. And that was initially started with um, cancer research in which they saw the people with cancer that had a lot of inflammation factors in, in their body, like cytokines, TNF, TNF alpha, inter, interferon, TNF alpha, etc. They tended to present depressed mood. And then with this kind of observation, a line of research was started. What we know so far is that some depressed people again present an increase in inflammatory factors in the in the blood and that sometimes this can be compensated with antidepressant treatment so we know that there's an inflammatory state that again we don't know if it's the cause or the consequence and that could be reversed with antidepressant treatments and again this is very complex because interleukins um, and all these inflammatory factors are very and a specific and it could mean that if you're older you're going to have higher levels if you're overweight you're going to have higher levels if you smoke if you don't exercise so there's many factors that also can influence the level of cytokines apart from depression and this is very difficult to control there's another theory that um, it's called the, the stress theory in which they found that people with certain genotypes that have a, a, sh- a shorter variant of a particular gene, the serotonin transporter, they were more prone to develop depressive symptoms when they were under stress. So if you get the same people under very similar stresses, people that had this shorter gene were more prone to become depressed and under stress. There's certainly a lot going on. There's nothing definitive. So th- this is this is part of, of the work we need to do in the future, working on all these and establishing the cause and what is not. But part of the work that we need to do is when we look at all these neurobiological changes, I think it will be really useful to separate the disorder into its different types. It's not the same studying someone with a psychotic depression that studying someone with a dystemic depression, for instance. They cannot be in the same box. The neurobiological alterations are going to be different. The response to treatment is going to be different, etc. Stress has an impact on the body. 
But again, there's different types of stresses that you can find. So there's acute stress, um, there's chronic stress, and the impact on the system is different for chronic or acute stress. It is also tricky because, as I said before, not everybody gets depressed under the same stress circumstances. So stress is something that interacts um, with your brain, with your personality, with your resilience, with your social situation, with your resources, and with your ability to cope with the stressors. And it's, it's, it's interesting because we've seen in melancholic people, which is um, one biological form of depression, that initial episodes can be triggered by stress, but then the illness becomes autonomous in a sense that subsequent episodes are just spontaneously triggered. And it, it could be that they are under stress during a period, but then they don't develop depression. Pretty much most of the time, with biological forms of depression, what we see is that the triggers are changes in, for instance, um, seasons, like melancholic people tend to relapse in autumn, bipolar people tend to relapse at other times of the year. Some people with this type of illnesses, it's really like a clock. You know that in May each year, they're gonna have a relapse. So this is pretty independent from stress. I'm joined by Dr. Josie Anderson, who's the director of our clinic here at the Black Dog Institute. And Josie, thank you for being here with me today. Pleasure. And what I'd really like to ask you is, given your, the length and breadth of your experience caring for people with depression, what's your overall understanding of what depression is? What's it about? Um, what understandings have you come to? Okay, so that's a very broad question. <laughs> um, look, I guess the, probably the two immediate things that come to mind to me about depression is how common it is, probably second to anxiety in terms of um, commonality amongst the, uh, the mental illnesses and disorders. And also, I suppose the second thing is that sometimes it's easy to understand why diagnosis can be difficult because we all feel down in our mood from time to time and sometimes terrible things happen to us such as bereavements where we feel very depressed sometimes for a period of time. So distinguishing those normative kinds of experiences from an illness or a disorder is probably one of the main tasks of clinician. Although we talk about depression and anxiety disorders as if they're two separate things, and you know there are anxiety disorders and there are mood disorders, there's no doubt about that. It's also the case that symptoms of mood are very often accompanied by symptoms of anxiety. It's quite unusual to have depression without any anxiety at all. That also needs looking at, I think, because sometimes uh, people do have um, depression and also untreated anxiety disorders or undiagnosed anxiety disorders, and it's important to recognise that because quite often the, the treatments for anxiety disorders can be different from that for depression. One of the commonest things I find uh, when I'm talking with people is that quite often other things have been overlooked 
I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by training and I know that when I see a depressed adolescent there's a 40% chance that one or other parent will have depression as well, often untreated. I do spend quite a lot of time talking to people about the various other factors apart from the clinical depression that we're faced with that can um, contribute to either the onset of depression or the maintenance of depression. And I know that that's probably what GPs who have generally much less time than I do to talk with their patients are quite often find. But it is important, I think, to bear that in mind that often there are maintaining factors that need to be addressed as well. Just going for a moment with biology, mm -hmm. um, again, we have a lot of theories yes. about what happens to people biologically uh, when they're depressed. Do you have any kind of thoughts about that or what's your kind of overall hunch about what's, what's different biologically? When We're still, of course, quite a way from sorting that out. We haven't identified um, any particular genes. I remember was it 10, 15 years ago, when they got very excited when they had thought they'd identified the first gene for bipolar disorder. Um, I think it was in a couple of Amish um, families where there was a very um, high incidence of bipolar disorder. And I remember a frisson of excitement going through the community until they started to discover other possible candidate genes. And uh, um, not surprisingly, I think that the result was, of course, that we realised that it's very unlikely to be one gene. Uh, and it's, it's now also very likely we know uh, that the cause of mood disorders is likely to be an interaction between biology and environment or genes and environment in a way I think that we had always seen because one could point to environmental stresses and even in the studies of monozygotic twins, um, whilst there was a markedly increased evidence of um, heritability, uh, it still wasn't 100%. Uh, so it did mean that there were some environmental factors going on. There's still quite a way to go because it's obviously um, a much more complex interplay, not only between the individual environment, but between various areas of the brain as well. I'm joined now by Professor Vijaya Manikavasagar, who's the director of our psychological services here at the Black Dog and Director of the Psychology Clinic. Thank you so much for being with me here today. Mm, pleasure. What I'd like to ask you is that given the length and breadth of your experience working with people with depression, researching depression and working here at the Black Dog Institute, I'm interested what your thoughts are in a kind of overview general way about depression, what it, what it is, what it isn't, um, what it's all about. Okay. Look, I think, you know, at a clinical level, and I, I've been a clinician now for almost 30, 35 years, I mean, I, I think I've seen a whole range of presentations in terms of depressive illnesses. But I think the, the variety can initially at least confuse someone who's, who's not, not very experienced because I think depression presents in so many different ways and depending on people's age as well as their stage of life, it can manifest in, in many, many different forms. So I guess at a clinical level, I mean, what strikes me about depression is that, you know, I, th I think there are some types of depression which definitely, to me, have a very 
biological flavor. I, I feel at, at, at clinical level it's very clear. And others that do seem uh, more responsive to um, you know, situational stresses and things that are going on in their lives or perhaps the way they've dealt with things in the past. So I think that's one of the, the striking broad tenets that I think I've come to, to realise. The other, the other one also is that how you can get a whole range of presentations in terms of people's what we would call, I suppose, depressive affect, ranging from people who report not feeling anything to the ones who actually talk about being profoundly depressed and seeing things in a very bleak or very negative way. So I think there are those kind of manifestations that are very varied. And then, of course, there's the overlay of anxiety. So sometimes the anxiety can mask quite a lot of depression because people are so anxious that it is actually a manifestation of underlying depression. And so often for a lot of people, their depression comes after a stress or a series of stressors. Mm. What do you think is different about people who develop depression as a response to stress or stressors as opposed to people who may not or who may ride through those stressors? Well, well I, I mean, I, one of the striking things, I suppose, is when you interview people, you know, most people who have gone through stressors will, will tell you what, what sort of things they've gone through, especially if you ask specifically, you know, in the last six months or 12 months or whatever, what, what's been happening in your life. And most people are quite insightful as to what sort of things might have led to um, their situation or led to their mood uh, being so low. The, the, ones that, the ones that don't have those stressors, I mean, even people with a more biological flavor obviously cannot, can tell you about stressors that are going on in their lives. But more often than not, they will express... A, you know, a feeling that, that it, it's not actually the stressor that caused the depression in that, in that way. The stressors might have happened in the, um, during the phase of them not feeling quite up to dealing with those kind of stressors. So the, the most, most people with that sort of more biological type of depression will, will talk about usually a slower onset, a very gradual onset, but a more pervasive feeling of down or emptiness or whatever that is um, and then the stressors come along and obviously affect them on top of it and when it's less biological mm. in response to stress what's different for people who end up as a response to the stressors um, becoming depressed yeah yeah what's happened in their process in the way they've faced perhaps those stressors yeah, that yeah. leads to a depression do you think yeah i think it's that's that's a very complex area obviously and i think with the ones that are affected by stressors more often than not there's a there's a sense that they had underlying cognitive schemas for example that those stressors might have played into uh, they might have had expectations about the world being a certain way and then some sort of stress has come along and sort of shaken that foundation. So there, there are sometimes cognitive schemas that, that were present from way back and those cognitive schemas could have emerged you know, way back in childhood. People's feelings of abandonment or not feeling like they were loved or that they're unlovable or that... Um, you know, the world's a dangerous place, or whatever it is. Or, you know, quite often I see people who had a very 
rigid view of how the world should be and how they behave in the world and everything would have been fine had the stress not come along and then of course once once that stress hit it hits it it kind of i suppose triggers off those schemas and and all the cognitions the dysfunctional thoughts that go along with it so that perpetuates the stress response and then coupled with that sometimes you also have people who have uh, enduring pre uh, pre-existing i suppose before the stressor ways of coping with stress which aren't always all that productive or that all that uh, good for them but unfortunately once people start to get stressed or they get depressed they they tend to rely on tried and true ways of coping and some of those tried and true ways of coping from way back may not actually be all that that useful so yeah i guess then you know as a as a clinician our job is very much to to uh, tease apart all those all those factors when it comes to treatment in terms of what could be actually what could have led to this person reacting to that particular stress at this particular time in that way and what's perpetuating those feelings or those um, you know those thoughts so why, why is this person continuing along those lines and then of course taking into account how they're actually dealing with it and trying to persuade them to if if they're not you know if the coping strategies are a little bit dysfunctional to actually look at other strategies might be more productive so i think as a clinician it's it's there's there's several things that you would be juggling at the same time because one is you want to alleviate the symptoms to a great extent obviously you you know alleviate their suffering but you are also at all times i think trying to make sure that it doesn't recur or that you're kind of putting into place strategies that will actually work in the long term and and you're doing the both together usually so i think that's one of the challenges i think as what i've learned i think over years is is firstly you've really got to tread slowly because more often than not someone with a depression is going to feel quite overwhelmed with lots of things and the last thing even though you know you might be using or you might be an advocate of some very very good therapies if they're in any way complex or they're going to put a lot of burden on the patient to take responsibility or do homework tasks and things like that they're probably not going to be all that effective because the person's just not going to be ready for it so i think one of the key messages would be to go slowly and get to really understand where that patient is at in terms of firstly their motivation and their ability to actually follow what you're saying in terms of you know your the rationale for the treatment and the steps that are actually involved so you might need to break down steps in whatever treatment you're using to administer it in a sort of a manageable way i found a little bit of pleasant event scheduling very effective people quite like that because it gives them a bit of time out it gets them to think about what sort of things they used to like doing um mindfulness meditation is good but again you've just got to be careful as to how much someone can concentrate for any length of time and um you know stay focused or or you know really stay in the moment because that moment may not be all that pleasant for them other techniques i mean i i usually depending on how depressed someone is i might recommend that they get out and go for a walk or you know go with their partners or their friends or whatever and just try and get them out of the house a little bit just to get a little bit of activity happening but those would be the the starting points and then at that and then you can you know obviously move into the more complex types of interventions 
what are the things that would indicate to you in this person maybe it would be a good idea to consider some medication? The the things that I would look out for is, I mean, if, if someone is really having so much difficulty, say, sleeping, and that they're quite exhausted or they're, they're just not engaged in, in anything because they're so tired, I think at that point I think they really need to look at perhaps some medication, especially if they're not, not even able to engage in some of the strategies, the psychological strategies that would help them improve their sleep. So I think initially that it may be useful for them to have meds. Um, the other indications might be high levels of anxiety, really, really high levels of anxiety, which lead to a lot of avoidance behaviours and you know almost trepidation about trying any of the strategies that you might suggest. And I think there, again, perhaps the role of meds might, might help to alleviate some of that anxiety. The other areas, of course, are, I mean, if someone is profoundly depressed and they're, they're you know, when you assess them, they are so depressed that really even putting forward a treatment plan at a psychological level is, is impossible. I mean, obviously, you would, you would then really consider that they need to go back to the G, their GP and talk about meds. Several of the patients that I see too, I guess their level of functioning is a big uh, component. So even though you know that they're going to respond to a particular intervention or they, they are actually going to get better, the level of disruption to their lives and the level of you know, absenteeism from work or their lack of performance in work, depending on the type of job that they're doing, that would also be another indication that maybe they need to really hit this on the head very hard, even if it's a stress-related depression, simply because their their lives are getting so out of control because of the depression. I've, I've got to say that one of the, the real challenges I've found is that there are a number of people that I see, and perhaps it's more a reflection of the type of practice that I have, who act, who are being treated for depression and actually have some level of bipolar and there's you know the revelation I suppose and then having to write back to the the GP or the psychiatrist to say you know this person has told me about this particular behavior and really this is perhaps indicative of something more. Thank you so much for talking with me today and shedding some light on, on a very complex area.